Hey everybody, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LeMaster. I want to start out by thanking all of our listeners for your continued listenership, for your continued donations, and for continuing to like and share our podcast. That's really how the message spreads like a wildfire, and that's that's what we want. So my reach only goes out so far on social media, and I ask that all of you please like and share our podcasts and share them with your friends, share them with your family, share them with anybody who you feel can benefit from listening to these conversations as we unpack and map consciousness and map the mind and try and understand ourselves a little bit better through these discussions. Um, I also want to let everybody know that if you do want to donate, there should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast venue you're listening through where you can donate to the podcast. I don't take any profits from the podcast. All of the proceeds will go towards um, enhancing the message that you guys all receive. So All donations will go towards upgrading microphone systems after we reach 40 episodes, as well as getting a a program for my computer so that we can edit and splice and and do some more cool stuff with the podcast. But really, all the money that comes in is only for your benefit. So please, if you find some value in this podcast, please donate. All right. So as always, I want to let everybody know that we are sponsored by my private practice counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. We're a mobile and eclectic psychotherapy uh, company, so we will come to whatever location that you want us to. Usually we come to your place of performance so that we can get a sense of your environment and help with uh, help make these interventions that, that we suggest uh, more salient to you and, and your life. Um, so we're mobile. We go wherever you want. We can do distance. We can do teletherapy over the phone. Um, and we have a number of specialties. So we specialize in addiction counseling, uh, psychedelic integration therapies, general psychotherapy for any number of disorders, as well as sport and performance psychology. So if you have any of these uh, areas of your life that you want to enhance or improve, I feel like we all can improve in a lot of these uh, mental areas. Please feel free to reach out to us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Uh, there's also links to the podcast on the website, too, uh, if you want to share that, that link with other people. All right, so let's get into the good news section of the podcast. Today's good news story comes from the Good News Network, as always, goodnewsnetwork.org. And the title of the article reads, Global Suicide Rate Has Declined by 29% with Millions of Tragedies Avoided Since 2000. Uh, I thought this was really interesting um, because I've worked with uh, veterans in the past in uh, training them to help with peer support, like a peer support model to help reduce the suicide rates in veterans. So it was astonishing to see that this article came out where Um, You know, it's showing that the suicide rate among all people, among the general population, has been declining, um, which seems a little counterintuitive given that um, a lot of people report that they feel like the world is a little bit more chaotic than it it has been. Um, So it's great to see that people are handling that chaos well and coping um, with with new, healthier ways to prevent the suicide. So in this article, um, it talks about, like I said, that 29% decline. Um, but it also uh, equates that 29% sort of quantifies it into actual people. So it says the 29% decline is equal to the survival of roughly 2.8 million people over the last two decades. That is massive. Uh, if If any of you guys have dealt with suicide in your life, 
uh, either yourself or having to deal with, with a family member or friend who's been suicidal, you know that every single one of those lives is so it matters so much. And 2.8 million people saved over two decades, that just blew my mind. So I wanted to spread that good news and that hope to all of you that there is help out there if you want it. Um, all right, so let's get right into the podcast. Today my guest is a very dear friend of mine, Carlos Garcia. He uh, holds a PhD in biology, also has a deep fascination with chemistry. Uh, he's a fellow psychonaut like myself, a scientist, and an inventor and an innovator as well. Now, Carlos and I met a number of years ago uh, at a Native American church ceremony uh, where we ingested peyote around uh, the fire under a teepee uh, in an all-night ceremony and hit it off right off the bat. Uh, we found out that we we lived in the same area, and so we started holding uh, weekly lunch sessions where we discuss anything from psychedelics to uh, new scientific research to all you know any number of topics, and we've become really close over the last couple of years. So I want to welcome you today, Carlos. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have to tell you, Shane, I absolutely loved that uh, peyote ceremony. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've done one of those. Yeah, yeah, probably over a year and a half. But mm-hmm. they, they, just because it's it's so rough. Yep. <laughs> it's a rough experience. It's not for the timid. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, it's it's like you know climbing uphill with. A million mm-hmm. pounds of boulders on your back. When we started like at nine at night and finished up maybe eleven the next morning, mm-hmm. that sounded about right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, not for the faint of heart. Um, which, by the way, I want to let our audience know that uh, it's kind of cool. Carlos comes to us today, um, having had you know extensive experience over the last couple of years with a number of different psychedelic compounds and his understanding of these compounds goes way beyond uh, what my understanding is based on his background in chemistry so i deal with a lot more of the experiential components of these psychedelic experiences as well as how we can integrate some of these visions and insights into our daily life to make positive changes uh, lou has a strong i mean yeah, he has a strong interest in um, in the uh, the research component, the the chemical component. And with all of these uh, sacred foods and also some of the other psychoactives that are of synthetic origin, it has been a journey for me where set and setting and ceremony have been very important every single time. So this has never been a party thing for me. It's always been in a sacred context. Mm-hmm. And that's that's unique to you. Um, like that's how, that's where we differ, I think, in our in our experiences. Is I, I grew up with these psychedelic compounds, definitely in a recreational setting. You know, going to raves, going mm-hmm. to parties, going to festivals, things like that. And then it evolved into a spiritual practice um, as I matured, as I as I gained an understanding as to the medicinal properties of these things. Whereas you came to it later in life and mm-hmm. found these. Your your intention, as I remember going into these things, was for healing. Right yes. away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, healing was definitely my original interest. Mm-hmm. Um, shall I just vamp for a minute? Yeah, go for it. Um, so I made some notes here because I really only started on this path three years ago. It has not been very long, just a thousand days. And I chose each different set and setting with people that I trusted, respected very much. Uh, the peyote ceremony was a great example of that. It was very well done. Um, the 11 that I've had experience with now, 
uh, that I consider to be classical ones are cannabis, which of course has been legal in Colorado since January of 2014. It's been five years now. Um, ayahuasca was actually my very uh, first experience. That was December of 2015. And my other experiences have included uh, mescaline in the context of peyote and San Pedro, uh, psilocybin in the context of the sacred mushrooms, DMT, 5-MeO, which is by far the most powerful of these that I've experienced, uh, MDMA, MDA. For me, MDMA has more of a female energy. MDA has more of a male energy. LSD, uh, harmaline alone, but also uh, in combination as uh, a component of vaping DMT preparations. And the 11th one is ketamine. And for me, the ketamine was um, insufflated. Mm -hmm. um, sniffing it. Mm -hmm. So, in these last three years, all these experiences, all these different chemicals, all these different molecules, um, you've done a lot of exploring of your own mind in these last three years. Yes. And so that's a perfect segue. I want to I want to ask you the same question that I ask all my guests. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and that question is, you know, the, the the title of the podcast is Conversations with the Mind, and I want to mm -hmm. know. Just from your personal experience, what does that phrase mean to you and how does it resonate? What comes up? For me, that's pretty easy because um, the people that I was working with regularly over the last three years, we have an invocation that we do at all of our ceremonies. And I have it sort of memorized because it's the way that I conduct my own ceremonies with myself. And it is when I have the sacred food in front of me, I say... I invite this sacred food to participate with me in the best and highest good for consciousness. And after that, I say, I invite my body to accept this sacred food in the best and highest good of consciousness. Mm -hmm. As far as the conversational aspect, the main one that I have had experience with in that particular way are the mushrooms. Uh, the mushrooms really are teachers, and I've been very surprised to find increasingly it really is a conversation. When I go into state, I am in a conversation with uh, beings who are uh, of light, radiant energy, and they just give me revelations and insights. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, uh, and a really common, a commonly reported thing among um, psychedelic journeyers is that we, we see or we communicate with other entities and, um, you know, sometimes they take shape, sometimes they're, they're of light, like you describe. Um, and for me, you know, we kind of come to this, this bypass a little bit sometimes where, you know, sometimes we don't know if those entities are merely manifestations of, you know, fractalized parts of ourself that are communicating to us and giving ourselves these healing messages, or if they are outside of ourselves, if they are, uh, you know, extra extraterrestrial, extra-dimensional um, beings giving us, giving us uh, insight. Mm -hmm. what, what is your perception? It works for me either way. Uh, so it's perfectly convenient for me to uh, consider them to be separate beings. But frankly, we're all part of one grand being anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, it all works out about the same way. Mm -hmm. I would say the main thing about the conversational aspect is that... Um, my ego is not really what I'm having the conversation with. So whatever I'm having the conversation with is of a higher consciousness than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I feel like in most of our conscious waking hours, we're having a conversation with 
the ego self, mm-hmm. the part of ourself that says, I am this, or I need to achieve this, or I need to do this. But like you said, when you enter that state, the ego dissolves, and now we're in communication with this higher mind, almost like uh, you know, we're in, we're in the space of download. We can yes. download information. That's how it is. And I want to let all of our listeners know, just so you know, some of the audio in the background. My wife is cooking us dinner right now in the kitchen. Um, so she's cooking us dinner. My dogs are running around. So if you guys hear any additional noises, that's what it is. I just wanted to set that up for you, for you all. But um, that's really cool that you, you know, you have these conversations within your mind. And, and what sort of messages do you bring back? What, what do you bring back of value? What are you searching for in those conversations? Um those conversations basically are real conversations. They occur on their own. So it's not that I'm chasing after answers. I'm uh, usually going into a session with some intentionality, but mostly I just want to be open to what communications come. Uh, I really like your thing on the wall here in your home. This is in the context of mis- mixed martial arts. My opponent is my teacher. My ego is my enemy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. It's like that. And it's easy to let go of the ego when you realize, uh, as I did, I'm not alone. There are others in the universe who are there willing to meet with me and support me. And um, these sacreds make it a lot easier. It can be done with meditation alone, but in my own experience, that is so much more difficult. It would be like deciding that you're going to go out and walk 10 miles barefoot in the snow. Mm-hmm. You can do it, but it's just so much nicer if you just wear hiking boots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the psychedelic is almost like the hiking boots. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a little cushioning mm-hmm. for, that, for that journey. It provides just the right container to go walking in the snow. And if you have good boots on, you can walk 10 miles in the snow and be completely comfortable. Yeah. There's no need to learn how to go out and walk in the snow barefoot. Yeah. Um, this, we've brought this up in the podcast before, but um, the similarities between meditation and these altered states is profound. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. There's also a lot of differences between the two. You mentioned, you know, the pathway to, um, you know, being able to use meditation as an effective tool is much longer, much, much harder, much more arduous than, you know, take putting something on your tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of snap into it. Yeah. Um, but I also find that, and I know you have an extensive meditation practice too, that meditation in and of itself is a more effective tool to be used in certain circumstances uh, when when exploring the self uh, rather than the psychedelic medicine is. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like psychedelic medicines, for me anyway, uh, I use as as mechanisms to break free from from uh, maybe static. Maybe I find myself in a, in a state of static thought patterns, um, you know, closed mindedness and things like that. And I need something to shake me up or to break that mold. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas meditation is more of a, it's become more of a, a daily self-regulation tool, mm-hmm. you know, that I can use in my everyday waking life to help navigate this realm. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I noticed combining the two mm-hmm. is, uh, very easy. Yeah. For, they're not mutually exclusive for sure. And, some simple ones. Uh, I'm looking at a few of my notes here. Going into state, because it often takes um, at least a few minutes for uh, beginners to go into state with a new material. Breathing deeply and slowly in waves where you're conscious of your breathing, you're placing attention on your breathing as you're going into state, 
helps you to go into state and it helps you to be in state in a way that um, is very productive for you. And paradoxically, there's a sort of an operating system to this for me. I learned from uh, one of my human teachers that if you engage in what is called suspend breathing, where you breathe in uh, about a half breath and then just suspend breathing, you're not breathing out, you're not breathing in, you're not really holding your breath, that practice greatly accentuates being in state with whatever material it is. Hmm. Uh, with mushrooms, immediately if I go into a suspend breathing, which is easy to do, kind of like holding your breath, except that your throat is open. It's open to the outside air. You're, you're just, not forcing the hold. Correct. It's just happening. Yeah. You're allowing so it to happen. You're allowing it to happen, and your lungs are like a container that is just holding the air. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like an open container rather than pinching off your throat or anything like that. Suspending breathing greatly intensifies the experience for me, especially with the mushroom, psilocybe mm -hmm. cubensis, or now, cubes. Do you suspend the breath at the top of the breath when your lungs are full, or at the bottom, or both? About three-quarters full. Um, I don't like to be completely full because then there's a tightness trying mm -hmm. to do it that way. And about three-quarters full, there's enough oxygen in there that I can do that for quite a while. And the complexity of the visionary component goes up dramatically when I do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty remarkable that all of the breathing exercises that you hear about for meditation, they are particularly effective when you have consumed a sacred food. Mm -hmm. And the other one, uh, what's called single-pointedness in Buddhist meditation. I went to a Buddhist center for five years and I liked the people very much, uh, but it was a rather austere tradition, and I went more toward my own practice with more of a Zen Buddhist approach. Staring at a single point uh, in a mandala or in an eye, uh, pretty much all meditation practices have something about keeping your attention on a single point. It is much, much easier to do that on, uh, under the influence of a sacred food, and staring at that single point invites kinds of communication that are profound, are immediate. I kind of think that much of this interaction between humans and sacred foods is to engage an operating system that involves breathing, uh, control of vision, pretty much the same as the way that you would learn to use a computer and you would learn how to double click on this and right click on that. Mm -hmm and uh, just learn the basic rules of the road for how to use your computer. The same is true for the mm -hmm. human body. And I just want to clarify for our listeners, too, whenever you're referring to, um, what do you call them, sacred foods, mm -hmm. you're referring to this whole wide range of chemical compounds, right? Some, uh, some are actual foods, like mushrooms and things. Others mm -hmm. are not, like LSD, which is, you know, its own synthetic chemical. Is that right. what you're, is that correct? Well, we're on the same page, um, okay. but I want to dwell on that particular point for just a second. Okay. To me, these are literally sacred foods. So we say that LSD is a synthetic, but that's not actually true. Ergotized grain is the original source of the materials for LSD. And when Albert Hoffman first made LSD in 1938... Which, sorry to interrupt, but happy birthday, Albert Hoffman. Yeah. It just happened this week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had met him. I have a book that was signed by him. It's one that's of my awesome. most precious things. Mm -hmm. And... Um, when he invented LSD, he knew full well that for centuries, ergotized grain had been used for women in childbirth to stop hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. it, it induces very powerful uterine contractions, 
and women lived instead of died because using ergotized grain, the midwife could stop the bleeding. Hmm. All he wanted to do was to make it a more stable 20th century friendly form uh, when he made it in 1938. So he put a couple of ethyl groups on the nitrogen and that did make it more stable, so much so that LSD, if you put it on a piece of paper, will hold its potency for decades. Mm -hmm. But I consider it to be a sacred food in and of itself, because all we've done is make a minor change to it, or rather Albert Hoffman did. Okay. And I know um, I went to this uh, Detroit Psychedelic Conference a number of years ago, and they brought in a, a lot of um, shamanic perspectives, mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool, more um, traditional tribal stuff. Mm -hmm. And... Um, one of the things that they discussed at that conference was that ergot um, could have been responsible for um, the Salem witch trials happening, right? That, right. that people's uh, wheat had become uh, moldy, moldy and, and they ended up eating them and have all these uh, visions and people thought they were witches and mm -hmm. that it could have been all because of bad crops. It could have been that, but you know the politics around that were so horrific. Um, it also occurs to me, these midwife traditions were brought here from Europe when the first Europeans came to America, and it may well have been that ergotized grain was being grown deliberately, as it was in Europe centuries ago, to assist with childbirth, and that um, political interests in those communities may have been such that they were trying to discourage the use of this. So that's just a guess on my part. It is true that in very large amounts, uh, some of these ergots can be toxic, but since Europeans had such a long, strong history with this in the context of childbirth, I think that by the time of the Salem witch trials, all the people in that community were well aware of that tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's so fascinating to me how a lot of our modern day, you know, what we think of as modern day drugs or modern day psychedelics are often um, derived from things that have been discovered thousands of years ago and and um, you know Egyptians and and Mesopotamians and they all have their own um, methods of extraction and and things like that and even mm -hmm. um, you know another thing I learned at that conference is that alcohol you know we don't think of alcohol in this country as a medicine but that mm -hmm. was its original use you yes. know you'd go to you'd go to uh, the apothecary and the you know the person would have all sorts of different sorts of mead, as it was called back then, on the shelf for different ailments. You know, mm -hmm. you have a stomach ache here, drink this form of alcohol. Right. You have a headache, drink this form of alcohol. And, and it was a medicine. Mm -hmm. um, I think in some cultures it's still probably used as a medicine, but definitely not in our culture. It, no. It's it's used as a, um, a maladaptive medicine. You yes. Know, people will use it to self-medicate in order to numb out mm -hmm. or to drown out... Um, you know, whatever's going on, whatever's yeah. going on with their mind or their life. It is possible to misuse any of these sacred foods by consuming too much or in the wrong set and setting. Yeah, that set and setting is so crucial. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, having good people around you, I've noticed when I journey alone, my experiences are completely different from my experiences when I'm in a group of people. Mm -hmm. um, in a group of people where all of us are in state, it's... Um, it's not any better or any worse than my journeying alone. I learn quite a lot from journeying alone. But I really value the group experiences because the energy is different. So, yeah, can you describe for the audience what, what is, are the differences between the energy? One thing that I've noticed is um, the nature of the visionary experience is quite different. So with one of my uh, sessions with MDMA in a group setting a few months ago, 
I could actually see each individual person in our group flickering uh, between different layers of reality. Um, the most practiced person that we have was a woman who was flickering back uh, and forth across at least a dozen layers that I could see. And it was like uh, if you watch a movie that has kind of a stop action sequence in it is kind of the nature of what it looked like. So you had eyes open and you're mm -hmm. actually looking at these people and you're yes. seeing them flickering in and out of state. Yes. Okay. And I've, these people yeah. are, are different. So uh, the two people who were the least experienced were flickering only back and forth from one layer. Mm -hmm. And we had another fellow who was pretty young, but who was quite experienced, and he was flickering back and forth across a half a dozen layers that I could easily see. And it doesn't take any work to see this. It's just looking at the person sitting there right there in mm -hmm. front of you. Yeah, and I've, I've heard that commonly reported, too, for a lot of psychedelics, is that they open up... Um, they open up a lot of channels in mm -hmm. our brain, right? Not yes. only not only sensory channels. You know, um, we can we can see a lot more colors. We can see a lot more details and things. Uh, our sensor our sensory touch and everything is enhanced. Mm -hmm. um, all these, you know, it just opens the floodgates and opens the channels to things that are always available to us. But our brain um, puts you know like a governor on it in order for us to make more sense and and make these inputs that are coming in more manageable uh, so we can navigate through our daily experience and um, you know I really I, I believe that people who do take the effort to explore their mind either um, you know with with the help of these medicines or through meditation or any sort of self-questioning it takes mm -hmm. a lot of courage to do that yes uh, to explore that because these are not these are not easy questions mm-hmm um, just real quick, I think it's interesting that you brought up how ergot was used in uh, childbirth. Mm -hmm. um, something just popped in my head as an idea. Maybe I'm wondering if um, if giving LSD to women who have already, you know, their water's broken, give them some LSD, if that would help make the birthing process uh, easier. I, I would assume that it would um, increase their pain tolerance, make the make the uteral contractions happen faster, make the mm -hmm. whole process happen more quickly. Right. So we have a couple of guys sitting here with a woman in the background yeah, who, is, right. who, is, who is hearing us talk all about women's bodies. Uh -huh. and I think this is what we call mansplaining. Yeah, totally. It's, it was just an idea that, that popped in my head. Yeah, but it's an... <laughs> So um, I agree with that, actually. Uh, when I use LSD now, it's uh, 200 if I want kind of more of a, a grounded experience, and usually 400 if I want to be in more of a visionary state. Um, I think that if a woman before she became pregnant were to become experienced with smaller amounts of LSD, 100, 200 in there, my suspicion is that what you just said would turn out to be true, mm -hmm. that uh, a woman who already has experience, and by that I mean her body having experienced with that, with that material, um, I really think given this historical aspect of the ergotized grain and its long use in human culture, what you just said is probably true. Mm -hmm. And I wonder also, too, if that's not just with the ergot-based um, medicines too. Uh, again, at the Detroit conference, uh, there were a number of um, doulas and midwives there who have have had a number of children while in state. Good. They will take um, psilocybin mushrooms while they're giving birth. I see that as an entirely good thing for the baby, which yeah. of course is really why they're doing it. Um, explain. 
Why is it good for the baby? Why do you think? Because these really are sacred foods. Mm -hmm. And their removal relatively recently in human culture is a serious aberration in my view. All of these materials were regularly consumed by people in Africa tens of thousands of years ago near the equator. Um, the Sahara was not a desert back then. It was a green tropical forest. These psilocybe mushrooms were everywhere growing in cow dung and uh, dung from deer, other animals. For sure, they would have been a very important food as that. In the cactus areas, uh, like the Sonoran Desert, uh, materials that contain uh, mescaline, and this would include San Pedro cactus or uh, peyote cactus, those would have been things that it would have been relatively easy to eat. And these alkaloids, because they're rather bitter, are quite good in a context that we in America don't think about much. And that is, if you have parasitic infections or if you have pathogen infections, these alkaloids are quite good at killing many of those infections, especially parasites. Hmm. So if you have a stomach parasite... This would help get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And eating a very bitter cactus, you and I both know from eating peyote paste and drinking peyote tea, it's pretty bitter stuff. Yeah, it's pretty bitter. And when you get to that second or third round, you kind of got to make up your mind, okay, I'm going to need a little more. I'm going to drink a little more. Um, but on the positive physiological side, if you do have parasites in your gut, and parasite infections are much more common in America than people realize, this would be a way of getting rid of those infections. The psychoactive effects are also there, and I value them greatly for that reason. But this is one of the reasons I consider these to be foods. Um, these are materials that people ate. If I can dwell on that for mm -hmm. a little bit, most of my um, practice in one component has been MDMA and MDA, and I've taken those separately and also together. With MDMA, um, the largest that I think I've taken as a first dose is about 170 milligrams, and then about an hour later, about 100 milligrams. And MDA, a little bit um, less, because it, for me at least, is a little more potent. But I've also had many mixtures of those two. Those are synthetics that really were first prepared as synthetics in 1912 by a major pharmaceutical company. But I think what's really going on with both of those is that they are mimicking the effects of mescaline. And I think mescaline was, uh, for those phenethylamines, mescaline was the one that people would have been consuming relatively uh, regularly all over the planet. The only real reason I think that MDMA and MDA have become so popular is because they're active in smaller amounts. Mm -hmm. With mescaline, to get the same psychoactive effect, you need to have about 400 milligrams. And that's a large enough amount that even now it's rather difficult to get hold of enough mescaline. Mm -hmm. It's the hardest one on these list of 11 that I just mentioned. Yeah, I remember um, our peyote roadman or shaman telling us that, uh, you know, in order to create this little bowl of paste that, um, mm -hmm. that you know, maintained our psychedelic state throughout the night for, I don't know, 12 to 15 people, uh, that it took about uh, 10 to 15 peyote buttons or little cactuses mm -hmm. in order to create it. And each one of those buttons, he said, took about 80 years to grow. Yes. So the sustainability um, of some of these plant medicines is, is you know, it needs to come into question. And yes. unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of unethical um, 
farming practices going on where they're where they're stripping the earth and and mm -hmm. killing a lot of these plant lineages right um so you know it could be that in the next 20 30 years we might see some of these species disappear unfortunately if we were to uh treat it in that way um there are people who feel very strongly that there's an entourage effect where when you eat a natural material you actually have a mixture of chemicals and that it's more than just the mescaline, for example. Um, however, mescaline is pretty powerful on its own. So to me, going to the synthetic avoids the ecological, ethical problem that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But of course, you lose the entourage of effect of all of the other things that are right. in the peyote. Yeah, the symbiosis of the different chemicals of the plant, yeah. San Pedro, however, also has mescaline and it's widely grown as an ornamental. Um, so the 80-year thing, that's more of a peyote button thing. Mm -hmm. And with San Pedro, which also has mescaline, I think that can be cultivated pretty much at will, so you would get the, the entourage effect. People who go to Peru and engage in Wachuma ceremonies, they typically do consume San Pedro down in Peru as a source of mescaline. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, I know you've been on a, on a couple journeys outside the country mm -hmm. specifically for psychedelic journeying to yes. a number of different retreats and different medicines. Mm -hmm. um, that's I something have. that I have, I have yet to do, but <laughs> you know, someday I'll carve out enough time to do that. It should be fun. Mm -hmm. um, what is it like for you, you know, doing these things in a different culture, in a different country? Is it change the experience? That is a magnificent question. So the one that is most memorable for me in that regard was um, actually Mushrooms in Jamaica, and it's a group that I joined down there. There were eight of us. The thing about J Jamaica that's very interesting is many of the nations on Earth signed in 1971 agreement to prohibit a number of these sacred foods for use, but Jamaica decided not to sign that agreement. Mm -hmm. And there are actually psychoactive mushroom tea shops all over the island of Jamaica. Good it's, for them. It's, yeah, good for them. <laughs> So this has made it easy for people in the U.S. who wish to experience mushrooms but who do not want the legal risk. They can go to Jamaica, join with a group of people where you have a good set and setting, you have good facilitators who are going to be there with you, and you have mushrooms because they are fully legal in Jamaica, um, have been grown under ideal conditions. So you're eating really good mushrooms. So in that setting, in Jamaica, where they're, where they're not illegal... Um, it must reduce a lot of the the pressure or the the mental chatter that sometimes comes when we take these substances in prohibitive um, places, right? We get the right. chatter like, "What if I get caught? What if a police officer knocks on my door? What if this happens? What if that happens?" You know, mm -hmm. um, there's legal ramifications. Whereas right. in a setting like that, where it's not really an issue, you probably have a lot more freedom to explore. We were completely relaxed, and because Jamaica has beautiful beaches. Uh, we were out in nature most of the time. The only time we were indoors was the very first night. For the retreat that I went on down there, and I can either mention the name of it or not. Yeah, I'm go not ahead, sure. please. Um, I fully support those guys. Yeah, I do too. Um, the one that I joined in with was Myco Meditations, so that's M-Y-C-O, which is the word for mushroom. Uh, Myco Meditations did a terrific job. We would eat mushrooms one day have integration discussions the next day, then eat mushrooms again the day after that, integration discussion the day after that. And we did that one day on, one day off for 10 days in a row. 
uh, the eight of us who were in my group, we were very experienced with mushrooms by the time we went home. Mm -hmm. And we've remained quite good friends. Mm -hmm. That's one other thing. Yeah, so I just want to, you know, touch on this this climate issue a little bit. You know, having having a climate in which these things, these substances, and these activities that we engage in is not taboo, that it's not looked down upon, I think is a huge, has a huge effect on the experience itself. And, you know, we're, we're kind of on the cusp of his, history right now in this state. Carl. Yes. Like, like, I've been reading all week this week on my Facebook feeds that, um, you know, the uh, Colorado's trying to decriminalize psilocybin. Yeah, it's Kev Kevin Matthews is leading that, and he's mm -hmm. doing a terrific job. Yeah, we've. I think we've gotten enough signatures to get it on the ballot. Um, Probably. So a lot, of, a lot of interest in in making these things more available. You know, right. we, we definitely have the research out there showing it's medicinal. Absolutely. Yeah, so it should definitely be um, rescheduled out of that schedule one. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of profound um, healing effects for you know, the general population for people who don't have disorders or something that they need to work on. Right. Um, I've had experience now with mushrooms for three years, and my gut level reaction is they should be freely available in exactly the same way that cannabis is freely available and for exactly the same reasons. Mm -hmm. People judge their own situation, their own bodies pretty accurately. And the mushrooms are friendly. They were an important part of the human diet for a long, long time. It is for sure an aberration that the mushrooms were made illegal. It would be very much, in my own view, like making it illegal for people to eat the juice from lemons or oranges or any citrus fruit, and where the only way you could get vitamin C was by making an appointment with a doctor and having him write a prescription for you. If that was the way vitamin C were treated, we would all be terribly unhealthy. Yes, we would. And maybe that, you know, maybe that points out why we're so mentally unhealthy in our culture today. That is my view. You know, as a psychotherapist, um, you know, I only ha I have limited experience only being on this planet for thirty-five years. But even in the last fifteen years, you know, as a psychotherapist, watching it almost—it seems like. Um, Generally, not in everybody, but there's there's a decline in a lot of important aspects of uh, human mentality, human ethics, even human mm -hmm. values. There's a decline in a lot of these things over the general, over the mass population, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's little pockets here and there, and luckily you and I surround ourselves with supportive people who are on paths of self-discovery and right. growth. But a lot of people are not. A lot of people are mm -hmm. stuck and... Um, I think a lot of the reason why we're seeing an uptick in mental health issues and physical health issues is because we're so restricted in what medicines we can pursue. And this is why I use the phrase sacred foods. Um, a food is a medicine, and a medicine is a food. Classically, that's been true throughout human culture. But food is something we recognize as a material that we eat to get energy, but it also includes specialty nutrients like vitamin C. And personally, I think that THC and also, uh, so that's tetrahydrocannabinol, and also CBD, cannabidiol, uh, about a one-to-one -one mixture of those two is pretty much ideal for human health. I think those two are actually are vitamins. We just don't call them that. The vitamin history is so recent. It was only 1905 that the very first vitamin was chemically identified. It was vitamin B1 
or thiamine. Uh, we now have 13 recognized human vitamins, 14 if you include choline. Choline seems to have all the earmarks of being included as a vitamin. But I think the list is actually much, much longer than that. And I think the artificial restriction of many of these foods that have psychoactives in them has restricted our health because the, the materials in them are actually required, in my view, for optimal human health. Mm -hmm. People who have experience with these uh, notice that from their own experiences. For me, when I had come to use LSD in a way that was uh, familiar to me, it was, for me, hearing music for the first time. It was hearing music with a degree of clarity and complexity that I had never experienced before. Similarly with the mushrooms, I see things in a way that is more real than real. Mm -hmm. And this was documented even back in the 1960s by a scientist named Roland Fisher, who showed that people's vision improved markedly when they ate psilocybin uh, as a purified material. Yeah, and there's uh, historical evidence, too, of Native American tribes here on the U.S. continent uh, ingesting psilocybin mushrooms before going on hunts Makes perfect to, improve, sense. Um, yeah, to improve eye-hand coordination and ability to track animals at a distance as well. Yes, and along that line, the oldest known vitamin, it didn't have a name and it was not chemically identified, vitamin A has been known for millennia to be important in preventing night blindness and other kinds of eye conditions. Uh, vitamin A is very rich in liver, and people used to deliberately increase their consumption of liver to improve their eyesight. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hilarious in a very dark way that vitamin A is on the list of our now 14 vitamins, and yet psilocybin, which I think does exactly the same thing, just in a different way, is a vitamin that has been made illegal. Mm -hmm. You you said you're talking about you know essential vitamins that are sort of left out of our common diet and you know I love how you talk about THC and CBD I think that those are uh, miracle drugs yes there's a reason why we have cannabinoid receptors in our brain absolutely and that we evolved together with this plant over many many millennia mm -hmm. um, to deprive our system of something that we have evolutionary evolutionarily developed um, into our system to deprive ourselves of that is it's almost like shooting ourselves in the foot it really is, and it's perverse. Uh, every night when we go to sleep, our bodies in the cerebrospinal fluid transfer DMT, and end up, DMT is an abbreviation for N-N-dimethyltryptamine, uh, but a much more powerful one is 5-methoxy N-N-dimethyltryptamine, called 5-MeO for short. Both of those are produced naturally in the human body and are released during sleep while we're sleeping. Oh, I had no idea that 5-MeO was... Mm -hmm. was endogenous as well. Yeah, it's been documented in the cerebrospinal fluid for both of those. And I think that that's actually just kind of a backup mechanism. I think for both of those, they were normal parts of the human diet for a long, long time. For 5-MeO, for example, um, there's a tree called anadenanthera that occurs around the equator, both in North America and in South America. Anadenanthera produces large brown seeds about the size of a dime. Those, for thousands of years, were ground up to make a snuff, and that snuff was used uh, regularly by native cultures along the equator here in the Americas. Hmm. Is that similar to, um, what is it called, Yopo? It is Yopo. Oh, it is Yopo. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've tried that. 
Yeah, um, it's kind of harsh. I mean, it I, is. It was. It was described to me as a mixture of uh, DMT containing um, plant material along with ash. Mm-hmm. It's mixed together, and then they put it in like this L-shaped um, tube. I have and, one of those. And you put one of the tubes up your nose while somebody else blows the ash. So and, it's very and, painful, yeah, but it works. They blow it straight up in your sinuses. Uh, it's not a self. Um, inhaling process someone else is doing it with you Um, and it is it can be painful Uh, it made my eyes water but um, it also enhanced my ayahuasca experience that same night when I was was using the Yopo Um, and Mm -hmm. the way the shaman described it he said that uh, that the snuff actually helps make your visions clearer helps open up your third eye and and makes your ability to make sense of the eye of visions so you can get more from it Yes. Well, I agree with all of that. Um, The other thing about 5-MeO, I've experienced that with three different uh, routes of administration. Uh, My very first experience was an intramuscular injection. That was with a friend who's very capable with injections and uh, had experience with how to use syringes and bacteriostatic solutions and the like. So I was in a high state of confidence with that one. And also intravenous, I've experienced it that way too. It was the same friend. Um, who has a lot of experience with that. But I have to say, the most powerful experiences that I have had with 5-MeO have been in the vapor form. When 5-MeO is heated gently at a low temperature, it creates a white vapor. And when that single uh, breath in, which takes about 20 seconds, has been brought into your lungs, if you just lay back gently uh, on the mattress that you're on, you go into a complete ego-removing experience. And the right way to have that experience is just relax into it as it is occurring, not fight it at all, but just Mm -hmm. let yourself relax into it. My two most profound psychedelic experiences were my first uh, vaping experience with 5-MeO was what I will call a blue light experience. I was expanding out into the cosmos, but the background light was a a blue color. And my most um, powerful experience with psychedelics of all is uh, also with 5-MeO. And that was a white light experience uh, about three weeks after I had the blue light experience. Mm -hmm. So I've had 10 experiences with 5-MeO now. It is by far the most powerful one. And there actually are ayahuascas in the upper Amazon where 5-MeO is added to ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is mainly a two-part plant preparation that includes uh, an activator, harmaline, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, but also the DMT itself, which becomes active. The harmaline allows the DMT in ayahuasca to be able to move through your digestive system and cross the blood-brain barrier. That's why ayahuasca has the two different parts. However, ayahuascas are very different throughout different tribes within the upper Amazon, and some of those tribes include anadenanthera, yopo uh, materials in the ayahuasca where you can drink it. Mm -hmm. And the harmaline not only protects ordinary DMT and N-dimethyltryptamine, it also protects 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine. So you can have a 5-MeO experience by drinking ayahuasca. It's called a gray ayahuasca when they make it that way. Hmm. Yeah, I've definitely, in different ceremonies, um, experienced totally different batches or yes. brews, you know, and they all have their own... Oh, yes. You know, they, they all 
taste a little bit different, but they're all kind of similar. Uh, but the experiences with with each batch are totally different, and depending yep. on who makes them too, right. you know, um, the spirit of whoever, whichever shaman makes it is is, uh, you know, they put their imprint on the medicine. Mm -hmm. I have especially noticed that kind of variation with the mushrooms. Um, when I eat mushrooms and start to go into state, it is recognizably a mushroom experience. But different batches of mushrooms that were prepared by different people have, for me, completely different effects. It's very consistent within a batch. So if I'm within a batch and I continue using that over a period of weeks, I get pretty much the same experience from that batch each time. But when I move to a different batch, well, I also get um, a consistency of experience from that new batch, but those experiences are, are completely different from the first batch, from the one before. Uh, I've noticed, for example, differences between mushrooms in Jamaica and here in Colorado and others that have been produced elsewhere and then brought into Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there is really quite a lot more to this than just the psilocybin. Uh, there is something else that is, is going on there. And if I can go on about that for just a minute, this thing about inhaling things, there's one very intriguing uh, neural aspect of that. It turns out that the olfactory bulbs are a very odd part of the human body. When you breathe a vapor material that goes to the olfactory bulbs up inside your nose, the olfactory bulbs are the only neural pathway that completely passes the thalamus, which is in the center of the brain, and they go instead to an area called the uncus, which is on the temporal lobe. It is the only sensorial input that bypasses the thalamus. That very primitive chemistry of um, inhaling these materials turns out to be very important because you're not going through a, di a digestive tract process. Now, is that the same with, with like an inhaled vapor as opposed to an inhaled powder? I think anything you inhale would go that way because an inhaled powder um, still, when it's being inhaled, where it's going in is through the olfactory lobe. It's not going through an IV injection. It's not going through an IM injection, and it's not coming through your gut. It's kind of on its own pathway that goes to a specialized part of the brain. Yeah, what I've noticed is, uh, and I've, I've heard this, that um, you know, the pathway through the blood-brain barrier is much shorter if, if inhaled. Yes. Um, because, you know, the blood... You know, the brain is right behind your sinus cavity, number mm -hmm. one. So it, just in general, the physicality and, and the space uh, in between is much shorter as opposed to getting an injection. It has to go through your bloodstream and work its way all the way up to your brain and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I have gotten um, my most intense <laughs> experiences from um, the ketamine medicine. And especially uh, my preference is to inhale it through the nose. I think that's probably best. I've gotten um, intramuscular injections of it before, um, and it's just not as, uh, I don't go as deep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is what I'm saying. Um, so blood-brain barrier, that is the thing about uh, sniffing or inhaling these materials. Because the olfactory bulb has its own gateway through the blood-brain barrier. It's, it really just bypasses it, mm -hmm. and it was designed to bypass it. Uh, much of what we think of as ordinary odors, like the fragrance of orange or the fragrance of lemon, those breathed-in compounds, I think, are very important adjuncts for the psychoactive sacred foods and um, really enhance them. And in fact, if I can go on about that yeah, for a minute. Go ahead. 
Um, I've come to a certain view because my path that I'll talk about in a moment with the psychedelics was guided by the people that were available to me at certain points in my life. But I now think um, there is one approach that I would recommend for anybody who has no experience with psychedelics. And other people might disagree with me, but I'd like to just go ahead and present it. I think if somebody wanted to begin with psychoactives, the best way to begin is with MDMA, and it is to swallow 75 milligrams. I'm picking that exact level because that's the level that is being used in all of the phase three clinical trials by the MAPS organization uh, that has been providing the auspices for those trials. 75 milligrams of MDMA is an adequate, moderate dose. And Rick Doblin showed with his studies, it is better than starting with a lower dose. 40 milligrams was what they tried. And they find that 75 was right at that above threshold level. I think that somebody who wanted to begin with psychedelics, if they took 75 milligrams on a Sunday, waited a week, took another 75 milligrams on a Sunday, waited a week, took another 75 milligrams on a Sunday, these are rather low doses, but their bodies would become very educated as to what the effect of the MDMA is. Mm -hmm. It's a very heartwarming, gladdening, um, joy-inducing feeling. You are fully awake, you are fully alert, and you feel completely good. Well, it has an, uh, yeah, I mean, it has the amphetamine yeah. component in there, so you're definitely more alert and awake. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, you know, I. I don't think I tried that one for my gateway into into these uh, into these realms, but I, I certainly find um, value from it. I know you you have done a number of uh, concurrent sessions with with these many uh, over, over, yeah over periods of weeks, mm -hmm. uh, working on very specific issues too. Right, mm -hmm. and to continue on with my little narrative there, I think um, there is an advantage to doing work on three successive sessions about a week apart. Uh, because your body is learning how to make the most sense of that. Yeah, it's forming a relationship with the molecule. Exactly so. We invite our bodies to accept this sacred food. Mm -hmm. Your body has a mind of its own. And I think after three weeks of 75 milligram MDMA, the fourth week is a very good time to take 75 milligrams of MDMA, wait one hour, and then eat one gram of mushrooms. Because the MDMA has you in a very warm, good space, when you eat the mushrooms an hour later, which of course for a novice is going to be a completely new experience, they don't really know how it's going to go with them. I have found in my own experience that the uh, warm-up with MDMA makes an initial mushroom experience go much, much more easily. Hmm. And along those lines, um, I would even recommend three weeks of that, that is to say, uh, three more Sundays, which would be 75 of MDMA, wait an hour, take one gram of mushrooms, and do that three weekends in a row. And then I think the best uh, next step is go to three more weekends where you start again with 75 milligrams of MDMA, wait one hour, eat a gram of mushrooms, wait one hour, and eat another gram of mushrooms. So you're, go you're coming very gently into the mushroom experience. When I've done uh, the more heroic approaches, just eating five grams of dried mushrooms all at once and without any MDMA, the experience is so profound it can be uh, somewhat disorienting. Mm -hmm. 
And a part of it is your ego is trying to get used to the effects of these materials and your body is trying to get used to the effects of these materials. So you have a lot going on all at once. It actually, I think, would be better to um, move into it gently so that your body has an opportunity to experience these things in the very gentlest way possible. Typically, in my experience, for someone who has gotten accustomed in three sessions to 75 milligrams of MDMA, wait an hour, eat a gram of mushrooms, wait an hour, eat another gram of mushrooms. If you do that three weekends in a row, the weekend after that, you can just take two grams of mushrooms straight off the bat and you're gonna do great. Your body is completely tuned into it, knows the effects, knows what to expect, and it's fun. You go into the session with complete confidence because you already know what the effects are gonna be. When I talk about the you know, forming a relationship with these molecules. Um, you know, the way you described it, there's a definite uh, biological component, right? So our body is acclimating and getting, you know, preparing itself, getting uh, getting used to these molecules being introduced into the body. <clears throat> I also feel like there's a uh, ephemeral or spiritual component to these these medicines as well that, you know, the mushrooms were alive. Each one of these molecules have their own spirit. Right. Um, and... You know, we as human beings have our own um, spiritual presence too. So it's it's a matter of forming a relationship between, uh, like a mutually beneficial relationship between these two, um, these two spirits, these two entities, these two versions of consciousness, mm -hmm. um, in order to come together in a symbiotic way to to reach new levels of, um, you know, insight, um, problem solving. Any mm -hmm. number of things. I love the, you know, my passion with psychedelics and probably my future in psychedelics research will be around human performance enhancement. Yes. Human mental performance enhancement through either microdosing or large dosing. Since my view of these sacred foods is that they are literally vitamins that have not yet been recognized as such, uh, what you just said is entirely consistent with my worldview. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited for, I'm excited that uh, the psychedelic research realm is opening up. Um, and I'm excited to hopefully um, pursue a career in that and be on the cusp Absolutely. of that research. In fact, what I have not said so far is quite obvious. I mentioned 11 uh, classic psychoactives that I've been mm -hmm. using for three years now, which is a thousand days. It's a long time, and I've been uh, very active in this area. I, um, I have noticed with these things that your health improves. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of remarkable to me when I noticed it. The simple thing that I didn't say to you, um, Shane, is that I have had no bad physiological effects at all with any of these 11, none. Even when you're taking ayahuasca and you're purging uh, from both ends, the way that I feel after an ayahuasca session is amazing and it goes on for a long, long time. Uh, so ayahuasca is rather bitter. I mean, it's a hard way to uh, to do things. But all of the other ones that I've mentioned here are very pleasant. The effects are never physiologically harmful. It is very much the reverse. Your health improves dramatically when you start using these. Yeah, and David Nutt's research certainly shows that um, most of these substances are very, very, very low in toxicity. Yes. So 
Um, I just want to let our audience know that we're going to continue our podcast with Lou, but uh, the podcast app only allows me to do one-hour segments at a time. So this is the end of the first segment, and keep listening because we'll be back with the second half. All right, welcome back, listeners. Thanks for sticking around for the second segment of this podcast uh, with Carlos Garcia, Ph.D., um, in the first half, uh, we were talking a lot about psychedelic compounds, history of psychedelics, a lot of um, you know um, technicals on on how to combine, how to you know how to experience them. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit with you here, Carlos, and and talk a little bit about um, some of the experiential components of some of these, and you know not necessarily just in the psychedelic realm of altered states, but how how do we use these tools to explore, you know, this vast, um, this vast mind that we all have, and mm-hmm. then also the larger, greater mind that we all engage with on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. I would like to begin with mushrooms on that one. Mushrooms okay. have been the most powerful of all of these in that particular capacity. Um, even with low doses of mushrooms, as little as two grams. What I've noticed as I go into state is that realizations and insights just arrive effortlessly on their own. So you don't have to ask questions? I, I do sometimes ask questions, but it's not necessary for me mm-hmm. to do that. Um, these revelations, these insights, they are usually fairly obvious when I hear them, but they're startling because I wasn't expecting that way of viewing a situation. Um, they make it easier for you to see the ordinary in a, in a very different way, but it's effortless. It's not shocking or startling. It's more, oh, well, that makes perfectly good sense. Hmm. And these insights and revelations, they come along briskly as I go into state and keep going for four hours, five hours, six hours. Um, I've noticed that if at the end of a session, after five hours and six hours, if I uh, vape a bowl of cannabis, then my alertness stays very high. But what happens is that it tends to reactivate the mushroom experience, and the, and the flow of realizations and insights comes along more strongly again when it's assisted by a cannabis assist later on. Mm-hmm. Um, cannabis can be a little bit sleep-inducing, and I very much prefer the very awake, very alert state. Um, but increasingly, I've noticed that cannabis at the end of one of these sessions, it's not that the two foods are fighting each other. It's that the one is actually uh, sort of activating or helping the other one. Complementing. Complementing. Yeah, synergistic effect, for sure. And the other way I wanted to go at this, um, this is a pretty recent insight for me, but it's been quite obvious for me. I started noticing, uh, first of all, with LSD at fairly low levels, about 200 micrograms, that just taking LSD and then going for a walk in nature or something like that is actually not the best way to use it for me. And what the insight was for me was realizing as I was listening to music with really high quality headphones, LSD allows you to hear music in a way that is so much more intricate and so much more detailed than you do than I do when I'm not in the LSD state that I came to the following important insight while doing that. Not only is the music amazing to listen to, but the music itself potentiates, that is to say, activates other 
aspects of LSD. LSD does a better job if you are listening to great music while you're using it. It's like a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. The LSD lets you hear the music um, in a much more detailed, more rich way, but the music also activates the LSD. They, they are working in a pair. And it's not just uh, the LSD part. I've noticed the same sort of thing with psilocybin. Uh, there, it's very much visuals. So when I take mushrooms, I have artwork on my flat screen, paintings that I like. Uh, some of these are erotic paintings, but some of them are just visionary paintings that I like. Having a rich, uh, beautiful, joyful, pleasurable visual display to look at as I'm going into state with psilocybin, the visuals actually potentiate the psilocybin in other respects and allow it to uh, do a better job. And to move on from this, we have uh, in the human nervous system, we have 33 vertebrae that make up our backbone. And we have a number of different neural clusters. So most people have heard of the solar plexus, the neural cluster that's near the belly. This is part of a tradition that has been known by a different name uh, throughout much of Asia. And it is what are called chakras. So the most common theme is uh, seven chakras. There can be more than that within particular traditions, but seven is kind of the basic low-level number. And I'm going to go ahead and take a shot here. Uh, your base chakra, which is right at the base of your tailbone, that one is one that is mostly concerned with pain in the human body. And I think that probably the uh, receptors that are involved in dealing with opioid-type materials, things like uh, salvia, which activates these kappa receptors, but also probably uh, morphine in any form. Mm -hmm. I think that's mainly a first chakra effect. I think that the main second chakra effect is cannabis, and I think that the sensory parts are taste and smell. Um, when I've been vaping a bowl of cannabis, I've noticed that if I then smell <coughs> essential oils that have very rich aromas, and this would be cinnamon oil, lavender oil, uh, frankincense oil, I have a number of little bowls set up with covers on them. When I deliberately inhale the aromas from those different bowls while I'm vaping cannabis, it makes the cannabis work better. There's a kind of a feedback loop that's going on Sort there. of like the music with the LSD. Yes. But, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, for third chakra, which is kind of more uh, a power-type chakra, I think that that chakra is the one that is mainly being affected by ordinary DMT, N-N-dimethyltryptamine. And I don't really have a sensory aspect to go with this one. Um, fourth chakra, I think, is the one that processes MDMA and MDA and also mescaline. I think they're all kind of interacting at that level there. And I don't really have a sensory effect uh, that I've associated with that yet because this is all kind of new to me. One thing I have noticed about MDMA, my joints become very, very limber and flexible when I'm fully in state on MDMA. I can do a lotus position sitting for meditation when I have not had any MDMA. But if I eat 170 milligrams of MDMA and then wait an hour and then take a booster of 100 milligrams 
it is completely effortless and pleasurable to be in lotus position. And my joints feel great the next day as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a refractory period where, you know, you feel more pain the next day? No. It doesn't seem like that is. Not for me. Good. And these are just my experiences. Um, fifth chakra, I think, is the one that is mainly processing LSD. And the rationale there, the fifth chakra classically in Indian philosophy is the throat chakra, but what they mean by that is communication in general. And I think that's why the music tie is there for the LSD. The sixth chakra is the third eye. Third eye is probably processing of organs around the thalamus, but including the pineal gland in the back of the thalamus and also the pituitary gland, which is in the front of the thalamus. I think that inner vision that you get when you close your eyes and you see a scene inside your head, which is what we call the third eye. Uh, I think that the mushrooms are mainly improving the ability to do that. Uh, most of us know that closed eye visuals when you've eaten psilocybin are profound, mm -hmm. really spectacular. And I think that sixth uh, chakra, third eye chakra, is uh, being potentiated by that. And for that reason, that it's a very good idea to be looking at really, really beautiful visuals while you were going into state. The visuals are helping the psilocybin to do its job. And the seventh and last chakra is the crown chakra. This is the one that I think is mainly addressed by 5-MeO. It is by far the most powerful of the experiences that most people have ever had. And as you go into a white light experience with complete ego dissolution, you're completely expanding out into the divine. You're completely at union with the divine. Um, the 5-MeO is simply a good gateway for doing that. You could do it through meditation, but it would take decades probably to go at it that mm -hmm. way. And the analogy I would make on that one is, you know, um, you and I live here in Colorado. Um, most of us go skiing, we go ice skating, we go roller skating. The thing that you notice about all of those is that they involve gliding and losing some control, but you're doing it because you're gaining control in another aspect. We go skiing because it's fun. It's, um, it's fun to go sliding down the snow mm -hmm. and move in a completely different way than walking. So I'm, Sounds like jujitsu for me. Okay, well, there we go. <laughs> so for me, walking is like ordinary default waking reality, which is perfectly fine. You know, each foot is on the ground and you step onto one foot when you've stepped off the other foot. With ice skating, that's not the way that it works. You don't walk on ice skates, you skate on ice skates. When you go skiing, you don't walk on skis, you go skiing on skis. The feeling to me is very, very similar. Skiing, ice skating, roller skating is very much like the experience of using a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. um, on this, that's a very interesting, um idea with the chakras and their their ties to different medicines based on somatic experience and just from my own personal curiosity where do you think ketamine falls on that um, chakra system that's the one that i've used uh the least and i just don't have much experience with that so i, I can't really comment okay that's fine um yeah, I, I thought it was so great and important that you brought up um, the ideas about music and like essential oils. These two are medicines, um, and you know it makes sense that when you use these medicines in conjunction with other medicines, that they have a synergistic effect like this. Um, when you describe being able to hear the details of music better on LSD, I too experience that, but I feel like 
it goes beyond that even, uh, beyond the detail, beyond listening to music. So for me, when I'm listening to music on, on most substances, um, there's a transition between me listening to the music and then I literally become the music. Yes. So I feel it reverberating in my body. I picture myself on stage with those people and I'm... That really fits. And I'm there, you know. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the music. The music is me and, you know, it's, it's affecting my heart rate. It's affecting, you know, it becomes you. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think a lot of people... I mean, a lot of people can connect that way uh, without substances, but this is a surefire way to do that. In fact, if I can go with that for a minute, uh, I mentioned that for the third chakra, the power chakra, I don't really have uh, a sensory thing to go with that. But actually, I kind of do. Uh, I had noticed that since I mostly use combinations of materials, it's rare that I use a single material anymore. I had noticed that when the effects would start to um, glide down after a few hours, if I did one very simple thing, took a hot shower, Taking a hot shower would repotentiate the effects to a great degree. And along those lines, I had also noticed I have these uh, salt lamps in my home where you have light bulbs inside of them, and they're very warm. Um, to just kneel down and to put my hands on a salt lamp and to feel that uh, hard, salty heat come from that, I suspect that that's the feedback loop that's going on, for example, with DMT. Mm -hmm. that um, that sense of touch that goes with heat and touching a hard rock or in a hot shower having the water splashing against your body, I think it's mainly the sense of touch that is the feedback for that one. So what I'm really saying here is I think that for any use of these uh, materials, which I think are often best used in combination of a number of them all at the same time, um, introduced at slightly different timings uh, until you have experience with them. It's a very good idea to engage all five of our main senses. We can engage touch with hot water as a shower or sitting in a hot tub or putting our hands on a warm salt lamp. We can engage smell by smelling essential oils and there are great essential oils out there. Um, for vision, what I look for is very beautiful paintings that are very inspiring, very uplifting. Music, I listen to the very favorite songs that I have. I don't just grab music at random. Uh, one of my favorites is a Ravi Shankar recording. He was very popular back in the 1960s for playing sitar music. And that music works excellently with LSD. They complement um, very, very well. So going for it all, uh, smell and taste, it's possible to, to eat things while you're in state that have really profound tastes mm -hmm. and that you really like for the taste alone, not just the nutritional part. Beautiful, the most beautiful things that you can find to you, to you as an individual to look at as artwork, whatever that might be. Music, the same story, whatever is meaningful to you, make sure that that is how you're engaging the sense of hearing. So if you're engaging touch and smell and taste and hearing and vision, if you're engaging all of the senses in a very positive way while using the companion sacred food that I think goes with each of these, you end up with a far more profound experience overall because you're creating feedback loops for all seven chakras. Mm -hmm. And I would probably, you know, let our audience know that these 
these methods to engage the sensor the senses um, could be used standalone you know without a medicine uh, on board as well uh, or a, a substance very good point so someone could if you wanted to enrich your overall experience of human existence and life um, you know take those same suggestions you know surround yourself by beautiful images um, you know engage in in beautiful uh, music listening and um, you know, mindful eating and really tasting things, this can enhance, you know, everyday experience as well. Mm -hmm. um, I want to I touch back on something that you said in um, the earlier segment of the podcast, because you were describing how sometimes in session with, with other people in the, in the rooms, you've been able to look at them and see them flicker between um, what it sounded like multiple dimensions yes. of reality. Yes, that is correct. Um, so... You know, you said some people could only flicker between one and two. Others who had more experience could flicker between multiple. At least you know, a dozen that I could see. At least a dozen. Um, how, do you, how do you make sense of that uh, when it comes to the nature of reality? Well, one way that we could look at it, and I'm uh, really just completely speculating on this particular point, because when I talk about this flickering, I'm literally seeing it. I mean, it's entirely a visual effect. But my sense of it is that uh, we humans tend to be, in 2019, caught up in a kind of a materialistic view of our bodies, that mm. our body is the one and only static version of reality. It may instead actually be true that we are existing on a number of different dimensional levels all the time. It's just that we tend really only to notice the Earth-based level that makes it easier for us to get a job or go to school or um, go shopping, things of that sort. But it could be viewed that we are always existing on multiple levels. We're just aw not aware of it most of the time. But the people who have used psychedelics the most, those are the people I've noticed flicker the most. Mm -hmm. And I think they are aware that they are in different dimensional realities while fully awake, fully alert in ordinary default waking reality. These others are there in addition to that. Well, I think the psychedelic compounds certainly open our eyes to the reality that these other dimensions exist in right. the first place, right? Mm -hmm. uh, someone with no experience with any of these medicines may have experienced something similar while spinning around on the playground and getting dizzy. Yeah. Um, but these these medicines are a, a great gateway. Like I said, when, when all this information comes flooding in, we're finally shown that there's a lot more to our existence than, than what we perceive on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And once you become aware of those states, and even you know, if you can learn to master navigating go. those different spaces. Navigating there, is the right word. You can bring that back to your everyday 3D, you know, human body existence and have that knowledge to be able to engage the, the multiple dimensionality of what it means to have a consciousness and to have a human body. In fact, in the spirit of that chain, the biggest aspect of all of this that I have not said out loud so far I feel good all the time, whether I'm in state or out of state. That wasn't and, always the case though, oh, when no. we first met. That was no, not the case. No, I was in uh, three years ago when I began, I was pretty unhappy pretty much all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and that, it, had been a, that had been a, a pattern for you for more, yes. more than a couple decades, maybe? Yeah, that's yeah. correct, for a long, long time. And since I thought of it as normal, 
I didn't really see that there was anything to change. It was only when I was out of that um, kind of negative uh, background state that I realized, oh my gosh, it actually is possible to feel good all the time because I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it is now. So that's great. Uh, I want to ask you, how do you do it? Because a lot of our listeners are probably like, I want some of that. I want to feel good all the time. How do I do that? Well, and what I tell my clients is it's a choice. It's a choice mm-hmm. in every moment. But how do you do it? With the sacred foods. So um, the protocol that I mentioned before If someone were to take 75 milligrams of MDMA, wait an hour, take mushrooms, simply doing that nutritional practice um, every weekend on on a Sunday, the body will automatically start to do a lot of that stuff on its own. Now there is feedback because uh, with mushrooms, for example, you receive lessons, you receive insights that appear within your consciousness and those feedback as well. Since those lessons start to partner with the medicines themselves, they're working together such that you feel somatically good every single day, more and more and more and more. And it's, it's like just, the more you learn about yourself, yeah. the better you feel. But part of that learning is nutritional learning. It's mm-hmm. your body having uh, nutritional materials to work with that it's never had before. And as you continue to consume them, it's exactly like uh, somebody who has scurvy starting to eat vitamin C. Well, they're going to get a big improvement in their health, but if they continue to eat vitamin C on a regular basis, they're not just going to be recovering from the negative effects of a vitamin C deficiency. The body makes use of vitamin C for highly positive effects as well. So you keep going. Mm -hmm. You go into a healthier and healthier, more enjoyable state. Mm I like that we that we're bringing the conversation a little bit to the body, right? Yes. Because consciousness, um, in my in my view, consciousness is it includes the body, but is not localized within the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and something, you know, this has been on my mind today as I was preparing my mind for this podcast. Um, I wanted to, you know, I was reflecting on, <laughs> you know, it is January, so it's the beginning of a new year, and I was reflecting on, you know, what have I been working on in the last year or, you know, up my entire life up till now and um something that kept coming back to me was how i conceptualized or viewed my body yes and i think through my through my childhood through my teens through my 20s um i viewed my body um it's not that i hated my body it's just that i was indifferent to it you know so so i felt like you and I have had exactly the same insight and experience in that regard, even though you and I have not previously talked about that. Okay. Um, so for some of our, yeah, so then for some of our listeners who, who don't know what I'm talking about, you know, the first 25 years of my life, um, I just had disregard for my body. I would feed it bad stuff, you know, um, I would take unnecessary risks uh, with my body and just had no sense of any consequence. Um but later, probably in my early, th- probably right around when I turned 30 and started using uh, a lot of these medicines in a spiritual way and reconnecting with my body, what I've come to learn and really cherish and, and value is, you know, I was shown in a visionary state that, you know, my body is its own universe. Yes. It is a, its own universal system with trillions of you know, living organisms and bacteria and systems. And, 
symbiotic relationships and all sorts of things going on in there that I am not consciously aware of, um, but that I need to treat my body as such that that it is this it is this amazing machine that we have very little comprehension of, just like the universe, you know. But we need to hold it in the space of awe, mm-hmm. just like we do with the universe, you know. Just it might not be the same size, but it it is essentially the same thing. We are a universe contained within ourselves, and we need mm-hmm. to treat ourselves with that level of reverence. Learning how to love yourself is the great skill to be mastered in life. When you truly realize that you love yourself as you are, unconditionally, just as you are, that is a very important first step for being able to love other people to that degree and to love all of creation, all of existence to the same degree. And by saying loving yourself, you don't mean that, um, you know, you can love every, every part of yourself, but you can still have dreams and desires to improve in areas, right? You can still see, like, this may be a weak area of my physicality that I want to improve, mm-hmm. but I'm still okay with the way I am. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not an excuse to become complacent is what oh, I'm trying to get to. I completely agree with you there. Where I was going with this, one of my first MDMA experiences, so the first time I used uh, MDA was with uh, teachers that I had conferred with ahead of time. Um, that was August of 2017, so about a year and a half ago. And it was a new uh, medicine for me. One of my earliest experiences was realizing with extreme shame and sadness, I mean, I was crying, crying, crying in my home um, when I realized how, how much disregard I had treated my human body with. Mm-hmm. And this included just about any kind of activity that was meant to show how macho I was or how strong I was or something of that sort. And in a way, our human body is kind of like a child that we, with our consciousness, are given um, some supervisory aspects for. And since I had always identified myself entirely with my body, the idea of mistreating my body as something that was morally reprehensible, that was a completely new concept to me. And everything changed after that day. I, I began very much paying attention to my, my own human body as a responsibility that I hold in my consciousness exactly the same way that a parent has responsibility for a child. If you saw a parent mistreating a child, you would be furious. And yet we mistreat our own bodies all the time, thinking that that's a part of our Western work ethic. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you describe it as being the child and that the mind has some level of control over this. And Um, responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, I think in my upbringing, I always, I never really identified myself as uh, being my body. I think I was always self-identified more with my mind mm-hmm. than my body. Me too. But I held my body in a space much like that child, um, but in a in a almost a demonstrative yes. um, light where, you know, I viewed my body as never being able to keep up yes. with my mind. My mind is who we, I am. We and are my, so on the same yeah, page. And I thought that my body was this machine that breaks down and, and it, yep. it can't keep up with the uh, speed. Utter and, disrespect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I, you know, I disregarded it. And um, as long as I kept my mind sharp, you know, mm-hmm. I could care less about my body. But now I'm coming to realize that these are 
symbiotic as well. Yes. The mind, you know, we don't know if the mind functions or consciousness functions without the body after death. Uh, I assume that it does, <clears throat> just from what I've been what I've been I'm, shown. I'm really quite sure that that is the case. That consciousness persists, and you cannot destroy consciousness any more mm-hmm. than you could destroy energy. So that being said, we don't. You know, I think for the longest time I had that knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to divert 100% focus into developing consciousness, mm-hmm. not in developing or taking care of my body. Uh, what mm-hmm. I'm coming to realize, though, is that the healthier my body is, the better able I am to um, to deal with and to to play with and to um, grow with my consciousness, yep. the healthier, you know, the body and the mind work symbiotically. Mm-hmm. The mind doesn't need the body to function. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the body does need the mind to function, Yeah, you know, um, but they work together mm-hmm. and they work together to enhance each other as long as both are coming to the table healthy. Um, yeah. Treating our bodies with respect, it enhances everything else that we do. In fact, it's essential for everything else that we do. And it happens kind of effortlessly once a person begins working with psychedelics because the psychedelics themselves show you clearly, here is how you've been treating your body and here's why you don't want to keep on doing it that way. Mm -hmm. You need your body to be in a healthy, comfortable state exactly the same way that you would with a child who Mm -hmm. needs to be fed and needs to sleep and um, needs to have care that's provided. But when they have that care, they absolutely shine. I mean, they grow up as wonderful children. I think that's one of my favorite things about these psychedelic compounds is that, yeah, they give you new insights that you never would dream or think of without them. Correct. Um, but also, they they allow us to connect with everyday objects, everyday people, everyday aspects of ourself that we don't give much attention to, mm-hmm. but these substances bring to the surface and show us uh, how we're misusing them, how we could be using them better. Like you mentioned, um, you know, using the salt lamp, right? Mm-hmm. In a conscious everyday state, not on these medicines, you just, you know, yeah, it may have some health benefits, it provides good light, whatever, but we don't take the time to f- to touch it, to feel right. it, right? But on the medicine, it shows you just how special this thing is yes. and allows you to connect with it, much like it allows us to connect with those part of ourselves that we're also maybe minimizing or skimming over. And, you know, I'd like to um, I'd like to work on my language a little bit here. I was saying there's a feedback loop um, between a medicine and a sensory experience, but I think the way I would rather phrase it is there is a resonance between a particular sacred food and a particular experience. Mm-hmm. So LSD is only a slight modification of a naturally occurring compound that is an ergotized grain. Um, music for me is the most powerful of the sensory associations there. But instead of saying there's a feedback loop between the LSD and the music, I would rather say that there is a resonance between the LSD mm-hmm. and the music. Like a tuning fork. Yes. Like you get the two lined up perfectly mm-hmm. and then magic happens. Magic happens. Yeah. Absolutely. Whereas if you just had one or the other, you can't reach that same resonance. There's nothing right. to reverberate off of. Absolutely. It's a dance. And the sensory, the experiential aspect and the sacred food that occasioned that experiential aspect, like hearing music in an extremely beautiful, detailed way. Um, it's not that the LSD is causing the music. It's that the LSD allows your body and your brain and your mind 
to be able to resonate with the music in a way that both of them are potentiating the whole experience. Mm -hmm. It's not the music alone, it's not the LSD alone, it's the two of them resonating with one another. That is what is transforming you. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> I want to go back again to another topic from the, from the first um, segment. You mentioned something about um, an operating system. And, yeah. and we've talked about this on, on previous podcasts. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, my view of consciousness is that <clears throat> is such that our mind is, or our mind and consciousness is this operating system. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, maybe the human body is an application like on your smartphone. Right. Mm -hmm. So your so your your mind is the Android system. Mm -hmm. It runs the phone um, that dictates, you know, power uh, and energy diversion and things like that. Whereas your body is a tool. It's mm -hmm. a it's an app that you can open and and use at, at your will. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of skill sets are like that, I think. So mm -hmm. I, I love this idea that you brought up about the operating system. I was hoping you could speak well, a little good. more to that. Yeah, I have two things in particular. Um, one, you know, I grew up at the time when the internet and the World Wide Web within the internet were all new. Um, we take it for granted now in 2019, if you have a computer and you never connect it to the internet, it's not really a very powerful computer. But before the early 1990s, all personal computers ran on the software that you bought. Whatever you did, you did on that computer. You were not connected to any outside sources of information. and. Now, 2019, it would be unheard of for somebody to get a computer and not use the Internet. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing is true about the human operating system. Uh, using mushrooms as an example again, although I think it applies to all of the other sacred foods as well. But with mushrooms, the main thing that I noticed with these realizations and insights that were coming along at a good, brisk clip it was coming along in a way that was not in any way reminiscent of the way that I had, but through thinking, had ideas at an early, earlier time in my life. And what I'm suggesting here is that there actually is a gateway, a portal, that these sacred medicines open between the human and the divine, and that many of these realizations and insights they are in a form that is like the information that is out there in the internet. Uh, when you go to a website and you have something come up on the page, you don't know anything about who it is who set up that website or how they put together the information within there uh, was done. Wikipedia, for example, a lot of people use. And usually when you use Wikipedia, you don't really know anything about the people who put it together. Mm -hmm. But the information is there for you. And all you have to do is be on the Internet to be able to access all that. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as it was in 1990, pre-Internet, where the only information in that computer was information that you yourself put in that computer. Mm -hmm. Now your information can come in from the entire planet. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great metaphor for tapping into the collective knowledge mm -hmm. base, the collective mind. It is what I'm well, saying. You know, um, or even that there is a collective mind to sure. tap into. And, and people, yeah, maybe people are still operating within this operating system that they downloaded and they're not connected to that, that internet, the right. consciousness internet. And others have found that, right. that connection. And right. some have dial-up connections, some have high speed, you mm -hmm. know, um, depending on your level of practice and mm -hmm. your level of um, intention and focus. 
In fact, along the line of attention and focus, one other thing I haven't specifically mentioned, I don't think, for every one of my experiences, since they are all planned and they are all in a ceremonial context, I'm taking notes uh, in notebooks as the experience is going on. Oh, as the experience. As the experience is going on during the experience. I don't see how you can do that. I I try and write. I have to do that. My handwriting is so terrible. It it is, but I just do the best I can and I do it anyway. And the reason is when your mind goes into a flow state, Mm -hmm. it's not the same as the resting state mind. Mm -hmm. And ideas do come into your mind very easily and in uh, in a brisk fashion, but they don't stay very long. Mm -hmm. With the ordinary resting mind, we're used to learning seven times eight equals 56, and that goes into a little box. And then we learn that nine times nine equals 81, and that goes into another little box. With these psychedelics, when the mind is in a flow state, you will have that uh, an equivalent revelation, 7 times 8 equals 56. But if you don't write it down, it's likely to leave very quickly. And my analogy there is it's kind of like uh, having homing pigeons that you keep. Uh, these homing pigeons go off into the sky, they go away, and yet they come back again. So it takes some getting used to that if you're only used to having ideas that are only sitting in little drawers inside your mind, Going to a flow state of consciousness means that when you have a particular insight or revelation, you are forgetting it much more quickly than you would forget when you're in an ordinary resting state. Writing it down makes it much, much easier to access when you go back into, um, when you come fully back to baseline and you're back completely into resting state again. Well, now you're trying to access the things that you were accessing in flow state. And writing it down, hard as that is to do, because you're right. Um, Yesterday morning was the most profound mushroom experience of my entire life. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it was so... What was your dose on that one? The dose was small. It was the batch. It's a new batch. Um, The dose that I took was two grams, and I've been using two grams regularly Mm -hmm. in combination with other things. Um, So the dose was not the thing. It's just that these particular mushrooms are particularly powerful. So... um, when I was having that experience, I was realizing getting connected up with a wider consciousness, that's the feeling of it. It, uh, it is an access to so much richly detailed information that I certainly didn't have before I took the mushrooms yesterday morning mm-hmm. that it's pretty clear to me this is creating some kind of a connection with a wider array of experience that is being made available to me. And these experience, these connection experiences um, are... You know, they're not. They don't only happen in psychedelic states. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nikola Tesla had a lot of experiences like this, where he would have dreams where he felt like he was downloading information. He would right. wake up and diagram a new invention. Yeah. Well, right I think away. it is the same thing because same. I think I think Nikola Tesla simply had higher levels of DMT and ah. 5-MeO DMT within his cerebral spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, people are different, and we produce these anyway. It's kind of darkly humorous that it is illegal to uh, buy and consume DMT, but our bodies make it every single day and release it into our cerebrospinal fluid as we dream during the night. And 5-MeO, the same story. 5-MeO was made illegal in 2011, but our bodies make Mm 5-MeO. We have actually made it illegal to have within our own bodies the compounds that our own bodies produce. Mm -hmm. It's insane. It is, and it's... It makes me really angry 
that um, Me too. the systems that are set up are restricting the one thing that is most precious to us, mm-hmm. which, which is our ability to explore our consciousness in whatever way we feel necessary. Yeah. Um, exploring our consciousness, in my opinion, is the, the best long-term way um, to potentiate human evolution. Yes. You know, the body can only evolve so much in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It takes many, 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 many generations for a body to evolve. Yes. But we can evolve through um, consciousness exploration, through growth in our minds mm-hmm. um, at exponential rates if we allow ourselves that opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would add to that, I mentioned three parts of the operating system that I've noticed in my own experience. Um, The first one, while coming on to a new sacred food, is to breathe deeply and slowly in waves and place our attention on the breathing. So we breathe autonomically, whether we put our attention on our breathing or not. Uh, But the key thing for that first one is placing your attention on your own breathing while you're breathing, doing Mm -hmm. it consciously. The second one that I mentioned was to suspend breathing, um, take a breath, but then hold your lungs about three quarters full makes uh, mushroom experiences much richer and others as well. The third one that I mentioned was staring at a single point, keeping a single pointed attention, which is much easier to do when one has consumed a sacred food. But there's a fourth one I haven't mentioned yet, and this one is applied all over the world. It is to sing. Mm. It is to sing. For the ayahuasca traditions, it's the Icaros. The yeah. Icaros are the songs that they sing in the upper Amazon. And the peyote circle, there too. There we go. Yeah. So the roadman and his assistants um, in the peyote circle, the Native American songs are themselves a very integral part of the experience. That sensory component of singing, I think, is actually a big, big deal. And even within the context of uh, chanting meditation, the om mm-hmm. sound, well, that really is a kind of singing, is what's going on. Mantras um, as well? Yes. Mantras can be seen as that as well? I think singing is a part of the operating system, and to just sit and kind of veg out after consuming a sacred food is wasting a lot of the potential that's there. Those four things that I mentioned, including singing, are going to greatly amplify the experience and mm-hmm. make it much more uh, valuable, much more accessible down the road. So I have a, a question for you. Um, in your experiences when you're journaling down these insights that come right. to you do you ever um, come back to your journal at baseline the next day and look at your notes and be like what the hell was I thinking like the message uh-uh. is not I've tried to journal things down and the message will only I will only um, have written down half of mm-hmm. the insight and right. so I'll go back to it the next day and it'll be like what was I trying to get at with this and then it'll it'll have to involve more meditation and things to unravel well more meditation is always good um and maybe this part sounds a little arrogant on my part but one of the reasons i write things down is i make sure i get the whole idea down Mm -hmm. and it is a struggle to do that sometimes um it's a struggle because there's so much going on and it's so So incredibly fascinating that the temptation is to keep moving on to the next experience and the next one and the next one because they're all magnificent and they're arriving so quickly. Um, but what I actually do is the ones that I recognize as being particularly of beauty, I write down the entire thought. So my answer to you is when I read my notes the next day, they are completely intelligible. All I'm doing is reminding myself of something that uh, my mind let go of after I wrote it down 
because it started to move on to other processes. But when I read it the next day, it comes back immediately. Mm -hmm. Have you ever tried um, using a recording device? I have not. Uh, I've gone, I'd be okay with that. Seems uh, like you'd be able to get your thoughts out much faster than I think writing. You, I think you could. Um, part of this is a prejudicial thing. My human teachers that I've worked with urged uh, silence within our ceremony. So we listened to very good music. Mm -hmm but we tended to minimize talking to one another. We tried to stay more focused on the interior uh, body experience. And yet writing notes, they were okay with that, so it's partly the habits that I got into working with the two of them. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's it's awesome that you have developed um, stability in that tool. With difficulty. Under it is older, not yeah. easy. Well, yeah, I can attest to that. Boy, I will tell you something else about that. Uh, my handwriting has changed completely within the last three years. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. I shape the letters differently than I used to. How so? More vibrant, mm -hmm. more open, uh, more dramatic, and yet not sloppy. It's just uh, when I look at my old handwriting and my new handwriting, they don't have anything to do with each other, and yet the new handwriting is pretty new. It's only within the last three years. Did that happen intentionally or just... No. No, um, I think it's partly just when I'm writing, when I'm in state, my handwriting changes anyway because I'm in state, and I think that it just sticks around when I come back to baseline. Hmm. That's interesting. It's a small thing, but I've noticed it. Yeah, it's small, but it also holds great significance because it shows... I mean, in su something such as simple as your handwriting, it shows greater patterns that you've been describing this whole time of, of increasing in openness, increasing in flow, increasing in, you know, all these positive qualities that you're developing, mm -hmm. and they're shown in your writing, you know? And more formally. So current personality uh, theory, is, as you know, has five main components. Mm -hmm. And I actually prefer other forms of personality theory, but just sticking with the big five for now. The mnemonic is ocean. O is for openness, the one that you mentioned. C is conscientiousness. Uh, e is extroversion. A is agreeableness. And N is neuroticism. So in formal psychological assessments, the big five is the, the current standard. And the reason I'm mentioning this is one of the best, best, best studies that I have seen within the last decade. Catherine McLean, when she was earning her PhD at Johns Hopkins Medical Center, uh, starting seven or eight years ago, she showed that psilocybin significantly increases openness, one of the big five. Mm -hmm. She was the first person in history to show that a permanent change in a key personality feature, openness, could be caused by psilocybin. People who have a 30 milligram dose of synthetic psilocybin on a single occasion, their openness increases dramatically and stays there even 14 months later. They've published this in the scientific literature. They've shown the numbers. Making a permanent change in personality because of a psychoactive, to me, it's the clearest indication you could have that these are actually foods. These are specialty nutrients. They are potentiating a part of the human being that is so profound, the proper inference to be drawn, in my view, is 
we are actually starved for certain specialty nutrients and our brains go into a starvation mode which is where most of us live our entire lives we don't think of it as starvation so what do you think are some of the common manifestations of this starvation mind that some of our listeners might be able to connect with it's easier to recognize after you've gained experience for example with the mushrooms because you are gaining experience with your old uh, resting state mode of processing information but as your body and your mind uh, your brain go into this flow state mode that I'm talking about which is more like ice skating instead of walking or more like roller skating instead of walking it's just a different mode of doing it and yet to go ice skating you have to have ice and you have to have ice skates so uh, it's not enough to just think about ice skating you have to provide an appropriate environment and you have to provide an appropriate apparatus on your foot an ice skate to be able even to do this um, so that wandered a little bit from your original question, but uh, this is basically how I see it. It is not that we are living normal, healthy lives and that when we eat a sacred food that we are boosting ourselves into some sort of an exotic dimension. That's not how I see it. The way that I see it is we were meant to be consuming these foods all the time, and when we don't have them, our bodies retract and contract and shrink down and operate in a starvation mode. The same way that if you take a human being and put that person in a cage and don't feed that person for 40, for 40 days, what you notice is in the early part of that starvation process, all of the glycogen and carbohydrates are used up in the body. Next, all of the fats are being used up in the human body. That's why we store fat. It's a great uh, energy density. But after that, it gets ugly. After that, you start consuming your own protein because it's the only thing that you can use to make more energy with. So your body becomes this emaciated wreck just to stay alive, just to provide enough energy for you to stay alive. Mm. Well, the answer, of course, is don't starve yourself like right. that. Eat good food and make sure that you eat plenty of good food so that you're not starved. Mm -hmm. But we are starved. We're supposed to be eating these sacred foods, and we don't do that in very many places on Earth anymore. Yeah, so it's almost like we're, you know, at least here in the West, we our starting point is a point of malnourishment. Correct. And then by integrating these essential vitamins and foods into our system, we can finally reach what our baseline should be. Correct. Um, what do you think... Yeah, and again, you know, I want to go back to my original question with this. What do you think some of the common manifestations for everyday Joe Schmo on the street um, mm -hmm. who is in this malnourished state? Right. How would that show up in someone's life, in your opinion? Um, whether, it, <laughs> I mean, would it be like, you know, mental disorders or excessive stress or tumors and cancers showing of, up in the body? Yeah. All of the above. All oh, yeah. of the above. Um, so I'm going to wing another one here that I'm very serious about. I am a biologist, and my view for most of my life um, was that basically we were keeping ourselves alive with our food, and we were doing a pretty good job of it, and that if we got diseases, it was because something was attacking us. There was a bacterium that was attacking us, or there was a fungus that was attacking external. us. external. Yes, something external, or there's a virus that is attacking us, or with cancer, um, some kind of mutagen, an x-ray or cigarette smoke or whatever, 
uh, is an invasive agent that came in and, and disrupts the normal mechanism of the body. I no longer think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is that all human diseases are due to nutritional deficiencies without exception. Mm -hmm. And what we think of as a bacterial disease is not a bacterial disease. It is instead a compromised immune system because we're not eating all of the foods that we should be eating. We know that half of Americans are seriously vitamin D deficient, especially people of color because they're not on the equator anymore. These deficiencies are profound. One of the publications that came out in the formal refereed scientific literature this past year, 2018, showed that uh, thiamine deficiencies, vitamin B1, occur in widely diverse organisms all over the earth, occur in birds, occur mm. in mollusks, uh, occur in fish and eels. Um, the idea that we get plenty of vitamins just by eating um, uh, an, F an FDA, USDA kind of food pyramid thing is wrong. It's an utter fiction. We are not getting the nutrients that we most need and most Americans don't even realize that that's the case. They figure, okay, well, I ate meat and potatoes and a salad, and I had a glass of milk, and I'm done. And the answer is, no, you're not. Those specialty nutrients, when you consume them in minimal amounts, will keep you from showing the worst effects of a nutrient deficiency. But if you just eat the amounts that are printed on a vitamin bottle, you are going to be way below the optimum level of those specialty nutrients for your body to perform at its best. Mm -hmm. So there's this nutritional balance component, which is extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, and coming from my field of, of psychotherapy and, and exploring the mind with myself and clients, um, I feel like um, there needs to be an aspect of stimulation. Um, mm -hmm. There needs to be, in order for you know, not only for our bodies to be in balance, but for our minds to be in balance and for those mind-body connections to be in balance, uh, there has to be, um, there has to be some energy behind it. There has mm -hmm. to be some stimulation. Um, you know, I, I emphasize over and over, you know, um, we, you know, with a lot of my clients, uh, a lot of my clients are athletes, right? So they're, a lot of their identity is wrapped up in their body. You bet. And they're great at um, taking, taking prescriptions to, um, for physical activity, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, go do this many reps on your body and you will achieve these results. They're mm -hmm. great at that. But then I ask them, okay, uh, how many mental reps are you doing a day? <laughs> and they're like, what? What are you talking about? Um, yeah. So coming from my perspective, you know, there has to be mental reps and that's that stimulation. There has to be, um, you know, there has to be intentional activity within the mind space. And again, I feel like the mind is just a tool, just like the body, you know, mm -hmm. the, above that, another layer above the mind is this operating system or the mm -hmm. soul level, you know, that we can engage the mind as a tool to solve problems, to navigate, to do whatever. But we are not our minds. No. We are not our thoughts. Mm -hmm. We are not our bodies. You know, right. we are above all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, using these things as tools to gain knowledge, to gain perspective, to gain connection, to gain love, um, some of these universal truths. What I would add to that is that it was a startling discovery to me to find that I was feeling really, really, really good inside my own body 24 hours a day, seven days a week as a result of this continuing practice. And I make mention of that because I think that 
um, when people are not doing cognitive things of the sort that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. engaging their minds, I think that that is a symptom of starvation. Yeah. When I am fully in state uh, with a combination, typically, of cannabis, MDMA, or MDA, either one, they, they both work, um, mushrooms, uh, usually LSD at the same time, I'm in a state of complete awakeness, complete alertness, and meditating and staying pointedly concentrated is easy, easy, easy. Anything I do feels good. It doesn't matter what it is. If I'm shoveling snow, which uh, five years ago would have been just complete drudgery to me, well, now when I'm shoveling snow, I feel like I'm in heaven. Right. I mean, it's, it's that big of a difference. And, and if I can pursue this just a, another little bit, I gave you the example of starvation, um, where protein from your, from your own bodily muscles is the last thing that you process. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason for the ordering there is it minimizes the damage that is being done. But if you really are starving, then you are going to metabolize muscle in order to give yourself 2,000 calories a day to, to survive on. And where I'm leading you with this is I think the reason that so many people uh, are unwilling to put in cognitive work is because it, they don't feel good when they're doing cognitive work. They're malnourished. If they were nourished, they would feel great when they're doing that thinking exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, the mental work is challenging for sure. It is. So is the physical work too. And these medicines make it a huge amount uh, easier. Can I mention one other thing about this? Yeah, we got about two minutes left. Okay, that will do it. Um, you asked about experience, and I wanted to work this in. My first big psychedelic experience was ayahuasca. And the very unusual, startling thing that happened, I found midway through that experience that I was moving around the room a lot, and I suddenly realized my body was moving into the positions of a pregnant woman who was about to give birth. And this went on all evening long. I was with two um, humans who were there as facilitators with me. And I was there, what the heck? You know, I'm just a guy who um, has been married twice and who has been in sexual relationships with women. And I just thought of myself as, I'm a guy. Mm -hmm. Well, how do I find myself physically showing up as a pregnant woman about to give birth during an <laughs> ayahuasca session? There was some other kind of communication that had nothing to do with my ordinary cognitive awareness of myself as a person. That was a huge um, spiritual introduction to me that what I think I know about myself is only a tiny part of what is actually true about me. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen, I've felt that same thing in, in those visionary states where, and you know, maybe it might be past life stuff, maybe mm -hmm. it might be uh, karmic stuff coming forward, but we are all, you know, we all have a feminine and a masculine energy within us. We and do. a lot of us are um, conditioned to only engage one of those. You know, I know my upbringing, I was, only, I was taught to downplay the feminine. Um, but that's something that I'm also trying to work on in my current work with myself is trying to not lessen the masculine because it serves me very well, but to companion the yeah, masculine to yeah. yeah to to shine an equal light on the feminine mm -hmm. and and embrace it. Otherwise, I'm denying half of who I am. Yep. Um, okay, so 
Carlos, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. It was My amazing. Pleasure. Um, I want to let our listeners know that if they want to reach out to either myself or Carlos, you can do so on my website, uh, mindops.com, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. You can leave questions or comments for either one of us there. I'll make sure that it gets to our guest. And also, um, please continue to like and share our podcast as that's how we get these important messages out to the masses. Uh, all this stuff is extremely important if we're going to grow and evolve as a species collectively and individually. So thank you all for tuning in for this two-hour podcast, and thank you, Carlos, for joining me. You're welcome. We'll see you all soon.